Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has shone. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those suppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. The themes of good and evil flow through the whole Bible from the beginning to the end. And what's important to note is that good comes first. That's what we are presented with from the very opening, the, the making of things that are good. Evil is not an equal opposing force, but it's an intruder in the Bible. Uh, we see corruption comes in to take hold of what's good and corrode it. Uh, and that means in the very architecture of things, including ourselves, there's a fundamental goodness but all of us struggle with corruption. So for example, uh, we should have desires that are good like generosity. We should wanna build people up. We should have compassion. We should rejoice with uh, people who are doing well. And yet, because of corruption, some of you might be thinking, as I was saying that, I actually don't have impulses towards generosity or I don't, uh, have compassion. Or some of you may say, I do have very generous impulses, but I have very little follow through. <laughs> I get distracted so easy or I get lazy. Or you may say, I have all of those impulses, but when I watch myself acting on them, I always discern some self-serving motivation woven into everything. So anytime I try to do something good, there's something there that reminds me it's not really thoroughly good. Um, and because of that, 
we have to figure out what, how do you deal with these deficiencies, the, dis, the discouragement that we experience, the fact that we don't live in a world where people are consistently generous and good and kind. And here are two typical ways we deal with it. One is we try to work on our thoughts or our emotions. We try to take some time dealing with ourselves. How do I sort this out? How do I fix myself? How do I deal with the discouragement? And that's good, that's important, that's fine. We do this, uh, what I'll call the contemplative approach. There are religious versions of it. Devote yourself to prayer, to the study of the Bible and theology. There's secular versions of it. Read self-help books, go for counseling. But somehow, if I could fix my mental world, my thinking, if I could fix my emotional world, then the result will be that I will, I will act as the kind of person that I want to, to be. That's not entirely wrong, and yet some of us are spending all of our time trying to fix ourselves and not acting. Now, another, on the opposite pole, is being a person of action. Saying, you know what, despite what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling, I'm just going to commit myself to doing good. But there's a constant doing that sometimes is masking the fact that we don't want to stop and reflect because we can't deal with the discomfort. Or we don't want to confront the reality that in all of our doing, maybe we're not doing what's properly right. And so we just keep doing and don't ask. The Christian life is meant to be holistic. There, there, there's meant to be more thorough transformation that is deep-rooted and brings a change so that it comes out in how we live and how we live together as a community. And so we've been in a short series looking at five core practices of Christianity. Uh, the, the core practices that our church, Emmanuel, says we're going to organize ourselves around. And we're now in the last practice, which we call mission. So we introduced it last week. Today I'm going to talk about one aspect of it, and then next week is the last in this short series. Uh, but all three of these weeks are about mission. Mission is uh, about the reminder that there's a reason why Jesus didn't simply come and take us out of the world. He comes and he calls us to follow him. He says he's bringing us someplace. He talks about a future, a heavenly kingdom, and yet we're still here. And there are reasons for that. Now, part of that is God is going to bring goodness into our life to a, certain to a certain degree that with renewed minds, we can experience joy in new ways. But we still live with our troubled selves in our troubled world, and so we go through long stretches of difficulty. And see, if, you're, if your view, as many, uh, for many people, uh, my purpose here is about my being happy, my being successful, then the difficulties of life in this world render our pursuits utterly meaningless. But the mission aspect that Jesus was sent into the world, and as he returns, he sends us into the world. So that's part of the life of imitating Christ. Yes, we should seek joy and happiness and success, but we also find that when we don't have them, our lives are not rendered meaningless because Jesus has left us here precisely that in imitation of him, we would try to bring the light of God that we would try to extend an invitation. And that's a large part of what mission is about, going out into the world, renewed people, connected with God, uh, imitating Christ for the good of the world. And so we are not going to grow if this is not an aspect. It's not the only thing. You need to have your times of reflection. You need to study the Bible. You need to sit still and pray. Um, but we need to have that well-rounded, holistic life. And so uh, ultimately, we need to be um, at some point going out into the world and imitating Christ. So uh, we do this, I'm, I'm highlighting imitating because Jesus is sent into the world 
And this mission concept reminds us that he sends us into the world. And so I want to highlight three aspects of Jesus being sent that will help us understand uh, some of God's purposes for us. I'm, be I'm going to begin by highlighting that Jesus was sent into the world to gather. Part of the reason Jesus comes that the Father sends the Son into the world is to gather, to gather people. Now the story of Scripture is, is a story of, of wandering, of banishment, of exile. So in the very beginning of the Bible, we see that, that God separates things out, light and darkness, land and water. And, and he creates with the land this habitable place where humanity is meant to live in God's presence. But uh, you read the early chapters of the Bible and humanity oversteps a boundary, which is not that they wanted to draw nearer to God, but they wanted to step into God's place to take his place. And the result of that was not more light, more greatness, but but more darkness, more distance from God. And so this theme of exile and wandering we see from the very beginning of the Bible becomes part of Israel's story. So God's uh, called people wind up echoing that story that, that they, they cross the wrong boundaries, so to speak, uh, and wind up themselves exiled. You could read that. That's the story of the Old Testament, that, uh, that over time they eventually... Uh, are in their own land, but are, are taken captive from it. Now, I'm highlighting that because uh, in, the, in the reading, in verse 12, we find that, that uh, this chapter, Matthew 4, marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it says, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, so the John here is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the last in a long line of prophets who are preparing the way who are announcing one day what God will do when God himself brings restoration. So for the, the first century audience, um, John the Baptist was somebody, a figure that they understood, and that his message would be more easily understandable than for us. Maybe we have to do some of the work to understand the ancient mindset, biblical expectations. But, but when, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, which is where he grew up, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we'll see that the imagery of the sea is actually an important part of, of his engagement with the fishermen here. But before I get to that, this territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jacob, who lived many years before, had 12 sons. Two of them were Zebulun and Naphtali. And each of the 12 sons were tribes, that their descendants had a territory. Israel was divided into these regions. Zebulun and Naphtali were the northern regions by the Sea of Galilee. And the call of Israel was to be a light to nations. So there was a boundary between Israel and the nations, but the idea was God's light should shine out of Israel so the nations would desire to come in. <laughs> there was one central worship space in Jerusalem. So those nations in the north should desire to come in and meet this God. There was an invitation. That was part of the, the calling. What we find through the, the prophetic writings, and so Matthew here quotes Isaiah, who wrote many years earlier, uh, about this, uh, about what's referred to in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the nations. Uh, there's a warning in Isaiah to God's people to say, um, you, are, you are walking away from God, and if you continue to do that, you will 
be completely taken away and you'll found your, find yourself lost. And that's indeed what happened. And so Zebulun and Naphtali, the northern tribes, would have been the ones that the northern empire of Assyria in roughly the 700s BC, so you know, more than 700 years before uh, the time of this writing, the time of Jesus, uh, the Assyrians, known as this cruel, violent nation, come in and take Israel captive. They exile them. And presumably, Naphtali and Zebulun would have been the first to go. They were there on the border. So it's an interesting uh, sort of literary clue here that Jesus goes there to begin. He goes to the border where people should have come in, but instead, God's people exited. They went out. And that's helpful to understand because what is the message? In verse 17, we get a summary of Jesus' uh, starting preaching message. And the summary is, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, there's this heavenly reality that this king, this one who's coming now in fulfillment of the promises, is coming to bring. And his call is to repent. Now, modern language, maybe years of, of street preaching and revivals, you hear the word repent and that strikes you as, oh, that's the judgy religious word that says you're not one of us and you need to become one of us. I'm sure it had an edge, maybe it was a little bit offensive in the first century, but, but you could see the large crowds coming. It doesn't look like their first instinct was to be offended. But with John the Baptist preparing the way, uh, Jesus coming with these signs of God's blessing, uh, his announcement to repent was the language to say the time to come back, to return has come. And that's what Isaiah said, you're not going to listen, you're going to wind up being scattered, but one day God will gather you. Jesus comes and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time, that was the signal. God is inviting you to return. Now they were already back in the land in a confused way, but they were under the Roman Empire. But that message would have signaled for that first century expecting audience a very hopeful time. And so uh, the imagery here in verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, uh, looking at verse 16, Isaiah says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has shined. That's what a people who then feel like they've experienced years and years of darkness were waiting for. Will God's light ever shine? The message repent from Jesus was a sign that light has come. And that language of the, the shadow of death, think of Psalm 23, uh, that, that language is there. As I was thinking about that, I think of, I think of Zebulun and Naphtali on the border of this growing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Assyrian empire hundreds of years before where, where darkness is coming their way and all of a sudden it's casting a shadow into Israel. How do you deal with a shadow with light? But the story was rather than God's light, uh, God's people found themselves stepping into the shadow until they were in utter darkness. Jesus coming and saying, repent, uh, the light of God is now beginning to shine, was an announcement of good news. And what's interesting for modern people, uh, there's a number of reasons why Christianity is not obviously attractive. So, so it's not that everybody in Jesus' day found it obviously attractive, but there was an immediate relevance, for example, uh, for them because they were waiting. When is the time of God's fulfillment? 
modern people may not have that mindset. Maybe they think we've moved on from God, and when is the time of personal fulfillment? When will I do the kinds of things where I feel happy? So we come with a message that says we have good news. Yes, some people are offended. I'll get to that in a minute. But I think one challenge of being missional, of inviting people, is that Christianity doesn't seem relevant. If we stand up on the corner of 121st and Broadway and announce, repent, my guess is people will. They will turn, but they will turn from whoever it is that's announcing uh, repentance. What we want is people to turn from whatever they're doing towards God. And one of the problems with, uh, with the imagery here of darkness, of a life in that kind of darkness, is you don't see properly. And so human beings are in, in tune with the kinds of things we desire. We want happiness. We want fulfillment. We want connection. We want relationships. All of these things, but, but we don't see well. And so we wind up pursuing them in areas that promise to fulfill but disappoint. And then we come and say, Christianity will meet your deepest needs. And it seems like, well, my deepest need is not to be part of a religious community. My deepest need is not to gather in an unair conditioned room on July 4th weekend and sing. I would rather be at the barbecue today. My deepest need is to eat something delicious. And so Christianity feels like it's not offering anything, largely because we don't understand that that desire for satisfaction, for connection, for goodness, will not be found in our careers or our successes or our experiences of pleasure. And so Christianity is actually offering what we deepest, most deeply need, but it feels irrelevant. And it's kind of like the difference between a teacher and a drug dealer. You know, you know I'm going to explain that. I realize I'm, the response immediately says, oh, this is new. Uh, so the teacher is there devoting their time and energy for the good of the students. They're there pouring out their time, their gifts, the attention. If the teacher is successful, it's measured in the students thriving. And yet, for the middle school student, the high school student, what's the standard response, the frequent responses? When am I ever going to use any of this in real life? It's wonderful that we're learning about people hundreds of years ago in foreign places. That has nothing to do with me now. It's wonderful that uh, you're teaching me about how to calculate the volume of three-dimensional objects. I'm interested in the volume of my speakers on, in Spotify. So there's a disconnect here with what you're talking about. But the drug dealer has a wad of cash, has a nice car, has fancy clothes. People are either quite excited to see the drug dealer or quite intimidated. And you think, now that's what I want. And so, so the drug dealer wants to lure you with those things to use you, even if you're being brought into a life that is utterly self-destructive and harmful all around. But it seems attractive. There's something about human beings that were drawn to corruption. See, there's that classroom and the teacher who puts up the artwork and prepares the lessons and we think, what a wonderful human being, but that doesn't connect with what I want. But the student who's maybe somewhat career-minded thinking, I know that education is valuable, will know this is a better place to be than out in the park in the middle of the night selling drugs. And yet there's something that draws us in that direction. And we grow up, and, and it's the same things. The, you know, Jesus offers us such wisdom and direction, and it seems like it's not touching on the things we most need. And yet, Jesus comes to give and to, uh, to bring life. And we think, good for him, it's nice, but what I really want is whatever. And then we, we stay in our confusion. So one issue with being a missional people, being 
Uh, those of us that are already convinced of the goodness of Christianity, let's go out and share it with others. Others will say, that's nice for you, but I don't need it. So one issue of being missional is we have a message that people don't see that they need. But another issue is Christianity can be offensive, and the problem is not with Christianity. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the problems with Christians and how we've made it harder, and I don't want to bypass that except for the amount of time, but that's true. Uh, we are not making the, the message always clearer and more attractive. But let's assume the best. Let's say we can get somebody to hear the message. You know, when you're wounded, touching a wound uh, could be hurt. You know, you fall and you need to go to the emergency room when the doctor wants to check out what's there. Uh, you don't want the doctor to touch you because in, in the, the touching you, you feel greater pain. The message of good news, of God's gracious invitation, touches on the very pains of our lives and therefore rather than saying I will sit with this until I'm healed the natural instinct for most people is I want pain to stop and therefore a message that promises good news but the but the explaining of it in saying this good news will touch on where you need to be healed as soon as you touch where you need to be healed you think I want to get away and so there's a natural defensiveness a natural self-protectiveness that keeps us going into the darkness rather than the light and so being a mission people is hard, and Jesus here is having great success, but, uh, but it's still not easy. And so, um, as we look at the ministry of Jesus, one of the things that's worth noting, if we want to be effective at helping others understand the goodness of the good news, it's not by getting the evangelistic elevator pitch. And it's not that that has no place of sometimes understanding, how do I articulate Christianity in a succinct, winsome way? Maybe you need to do that. But actually, if you're doing the work yourself and saying, Lord, how are you shining light into my life? How are you healing me? How am I experiencing your grace and goodness? That actually gives you something that makes you relevant relationally to those around you. So you don't come as a person of one religion trying to convert somebody of another religion or of no religion. But you come as a human being and where, where the point of contact is that own person's struggle, because every human being is struggling. Not that you're preaching, not that you're trying to correct, but that you say, you know, um, here's what I've learned about God and his grace, that where I've been discouraged, here's how I've worked through it. When I've found myself hopeless, here's how uh, Jesus uniquely has given me hope. That kind of natural seamlessness where, where you're transparent about your Christianity, but not the message that will convince them, but the thing that's really working in your life, it actually... Um, helps people. You know, C.S. Lewis has a book called The Problem of Pain, where he's dealing with exactly how difficult it is to make sense of faith in a difficult world. But he says this, he says, human beings can even ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I'm just highlighting that to say every human being is dealing with some measure of discouragement, of failure, of shame, of trauma, that we could have different ways of, of, of articulating it. Our lives are not the same. Our histories are not the same. And so we don't have the same experiences. We don't have all of the answers. But there's something about a, a humble person to say, I don't know if I have answers, but the love of God in me is going to make me love you, no matter what you think, in this. And to the degree that that people are able to see that God's love is helping us 
they in their pain will recognize that the gospel is not only relevant, but it is attractive. It's, it promises healing. It promises grace. And so to be a missional people, we need to um, be authentically seeking God's grace for ourselves. Jesus comes to gather us, so let's first gather before we go. Uh, but here's now a second aspect of Jesus being sent into the world. So he was sent to gather, that's first. Secondly, he was sent to repurpose. Jesus was sent into the world to, to repurpose. And here I have in view that he's bringing such a deep transformation, it's like turning things upside down. So this concept of repentance is about a turnaround. Um, so going back to the imagery of the sea. So here he is in this northern land, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Jesus begins his ministry by the sea. Now in, in Genesis 1, light is separated from darkness, heavens from earth, but sea from land. And that land is supposed to be a place of fruitfulness, of trees, of, of uh, things that crawl on the earth, and humanity that's meant to cultivate the earth. And then there's the sea, its own sphere. The sea for ancient people was terrifying, it was chaotic. And now Jesus, uh, beginning his ministry by the sea, goes and calls fishermen. So in verses 17 18, Jesus, while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's the repurposing. And they currently have skills with fishing, and he will he will give them a new purpose, a new skill. And he calls two other disciples uh, who are also fishermen. Uh, that was a common trade, a hardworking trade, a relevant trade. Matthew, who writes, this was called from the tax booth. Uh, so the disciples have different experiences. But then in verse 21, it says, from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. So there's that gathering ministry. He calls them. And the point here you could see in verse 20 and 22, 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's this invitation of this gathering, this discipling, but also this repurposing. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So this is a start of a new life. The boat is where your livelihood was, where your family was, your identity, your possessions, your value. Jesus says, now come and follow me. And they get up and go. Now, as, as a new Bible reader, when I was a fairly new Christian, this was quite puzzling that I thought, there's something so mystical here. It must have been like a lightning bolt from heaven that Jesus shows up out of nowhere. If, you know, if, if I was sitting at my, you know, my desk in graduate school and somebody walked by and said, come follow me, I would need a little bit more convincing before I got up and followed. And I thought, what is it about Jesus that he just points and says, follow me? And then you read like John chapter 1 and you find that Andrew had been involved in the ministry of John the Baptist and these brothers were talking about Jesus. So it's not this is the first time they saw Jesus. This is not necessarily the first time they're encountering this message. What it is is they were already prepared, they were prepped, but when Jesus came and said, follow me, he was inviting them, not simply for another installment of teaching, but to to, to be repurposed, to be a disciple and a first century rabbi gathering a school would not have been so unusual. And so when he comes and he calls them to follow him, he's calling them to leave life as they know it for a new life. And yet, he, he alludes to the work they're doing as fisher, fishermen, and he says, I will make you fishers. Right now you're catching fish 
but you will catch human beings. Now, again, this northern region, a people that had once been scattered and are now back and discouraged, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, these are people with a history, with expectations. And so let me read to you a short portion of Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah is another prophet, a prophet that warned, if you don't turn back to God soon, you will be driven away. But another prophet that also said, but one day God's kindness will come. Uh, so this is Jeremiah 16, verses 14 to 16. Jeremiah says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall be no longer said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. When Jesus comes to these four particular people and says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, he's doing something that, that was very needed, very anticipated. I'm calling to, I'm coming not just to call you to follow me, but I want you to go out and to call everyone, everywhere, return. The time of the Lord's favor is here. The time of God's grace is here. And so there's a repurposing here, which is that uh, there was a distinction between uh, human beings who lived on the land or above the water in boats and the fish who lived in the sea. Their task was to take the fish out of the sea. And what's very typical in our world where, where death is so woven into all that we do, that it's quite ordinary to think of, well, my job is to take the animals that belong in the sea and to take them out where they will die. That's fine, we can still eat fish. Um, but there's a repurposing here to say, fish belong in the sea and your job is to take them out where they will die. But people don't belong in the sea. And I'm gonna send you out to call them out of the land of the shadow of death so that they would live. And so here you are, you're currently fishers, very skilled with your nets. You cast a net and you gather something to yourself. But now, if you follow me, your whole reason for existence changes. Now he's calling the apostles. These were the, the core messengers. And he's sending them out now so they will be fishers of human beings. So now you will call people out of the shadow of death and into light. You will call people out of the chaos of the sea and into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and, and therefore, there's a repurposing, a, a, a new reason for living. And part of the, the mission of Jesus to call us to be his disciples, to learn from him and to follow him, is to repurpose us. For some of you, it could involve a career change. You're doing something unethical, so you need to stop it. Or you might sense a call to ministry. I actually want to go abroad and do some sort of mission work. For many of you, becoming a Christian um, may not involve a career switch at all. You do exactly what you're doing, but there's a repurposing to say, but you no longer do it to impress your parents or to make a ton of money or to make your mark on the world. But now you go into the world repurposed, not to extract what you can, even if it takes life from others, but you go into the world to bring what you can so that it, it gives life. And that that view of repentance, the mission of Jesus who calls us out of darkness into light, sends us back into the world as people of light. And part of that is to say, whatever it is you do, how do you do that to the glory of God? 
And so an example in Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, there's a repurposing. Now, the thief has all these skills that have been developed. Well, those skills that you figured out with your hands, use them not to take from people's pockets, but use them to, to cultivate something so that you have to give to people whose pockets are empty. It's that, that repurposing that, that is that kingdom transformation that the kingdom of heaven announced in this world says, Jesus says, I'm not calling you, I'm not taking you out of the world immediately. I'm calling you to a conversion, a repentance, a transformation, and then I'm sending you back into the world to live as you should have lived all along, as a people who have been gathered to the light of God to bring God's light with you. So Jesus is sent to gather. Jesus is sent to repurpose those he's gathering. But here's the third and final thing. Jesus was sent to grow a network to gather people into his kingdom. So he calls people, but that people become a community, a network, who is then gathering people. And so we are not apostles. The calling of Andrew and Simon and John, uh, different from our calling. But we're called to join that people, that community, who are a net-casting people that we want the, the church becomes a network. I'm trying to use a, a bit of an English language pun here on network. Uh, we have network to do in terms of our being a connected people that is then meant to catch people for God and for light. Uh, Jesus is coming to grow and gather people. So in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee. So he didn't just call a couple of people and, and impart secrets to them. He went throughout all Galilee and here's the nature of Jesus's ministry teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's one thing. And secondly, in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that the nature of Jesus' ministry is proclaiming and teaching and healing affliction. And when you think of the two um, missional fronts of the organized church, the church is a gathered people, that's what we do. Matthew 28, the end of Matthew, make disciples, baptize them, means proclaim, welcome them, invite them in, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So one of the tasks, and this is the task I'm focusing on today, is the proclaiming and teaching. Next week, I'm going to focus on the other, the healing aspect, that we are called to go into the world to respond to affliction. But today I'm highlighting the, the teaching aspect. I'm not sure this is precise interpretation, but if you allow me a little bit of liberty with the imagery here, in verse 18 you have uh, two, two of the apostles are casting their nets into the water. In verse 21, two of them are mending their nets. I don't know that that's meant to line up, but that is the call of the church, to cast, uh, to proclaim, to shine light, and to mend, to heal, to address brokenness. Uh, the organized church is meant to, uh, to do that. Now, you as individuals, the disorganized church throughout the week, wherever you go, do everything to God's glory. Teach for God's glory. Be a student for God's glory. Be a, a family member for God's glory. There are all sorts of things you should be doing. But when the church says, here's how we're going to organize, we typically do it to proclaim and in some way to bring healing. And so next week is healing. 
just want to say something about the proclaiming in this, in this last section. So that's verse 23. They proclaim the gospel. And here's where we have to understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming to bring the kingdom, to announce good news. He's not coming to instruct us on what to do and then leave so that we can do his work. Making a fine distinction here. Uh, but keep in mind these separated spheres of the heavens and the earth and the light and the darkness and the water and the sea. The problem is when you overstep that boundary, yes, it's nice on the beach to take a swim. But if you get dropped from a boat in the middle of the sea, you could be the, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you could be an Olympic swimmer and there's no hope for you. Uh, that boundary between God and humanity that we crossed, not because we wanted to draw near to God, but we wanted to take the place of God, was a step into darkness, a step into death. And then the question is, now that we're in darkness, how do we step back into the light? And the problem is if we're confused, if we're lost, if God is light, and you know, last week I made this allusion to seeing a movie in the middle of the day. I usually go to the movie at night, uh, and then you come out and it's dark. But if you ever go in the afternoon, because I rarely do that, there's something disorienting of coming out of this dark theater into the light. Uh, something seems off, something seem, seems wrong. It's painful to the eyes. There's something about humanity that simply to say what you need to do is to turn to God. It's just too hard. It's impossible to find God. It's painful. Jesus is sent to find us. And what we find is that Jesus being sent us to cross a divide from God to humanity. We tried to go from humanity into God's place, and we didn't find God. We found darkness and death. God sends his son into this world to take humanity's place. And what we found is like he being cast into the sea, what he found was darkness and death. This is Jesus' climactic moment on the cross, where he makes the good news possible for us by proclaiming I have done for you uh, what needs to be done. I have joined with you, so now you can join with God. And his resurrection becomes the starting of light, a radical turnaround from a world that moves towards death to the possibility that life is a new beginning. And so Jesus doesn't come down and say to a people dwelling in darkness, look at the trees, break the branches off, rub them together furiously, you'll get a spark, create a fire, make a torch, light your path, and find me. That's how so many people think of Christianity, because that's how religion works, that's how self-help works, uh, that's how moralism works, that's how philosophy works. What we have is Jesus coming in and saying, you have no light in yourself, but I will bring the light. Your news is not good, but I will bring good news. And by entering into our darkness, he makes it possible that as his light begins to shine, we are no longer a lost, wandering people, but now we're a people who are found and who have hope. And as we follow him on the earth in imitation, his light becomes the light of the world. Last week, we looked at a short passage in the next chapter, Matthew 5. Uh, but here, if you look at verse 25, it says, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Uh, that last verse is the preface to probably the most famous body of teaching, or one of the most famous bodies of teaching in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes announcing good news, and people were so desperate that they came to him in such great numbers that he gathers them, and then he goes up to teach them. 
And the passage we looked at last week is quite remarkable. He says to those who've responded to his call, you are the light of the world. Now, could you imagine writing that when Matthew wrote this? First of all, when Jesus said that, he had very few followers and, and the few that were there were very confused. By the time Matthew writes this gospel, the church is very small. They're a struggling, persecuted minority. The boldness to record Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, as if Jesus had the confidence that with the resurrection, God's light is going to increase. And here we are on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, saying there is life offered to us. There, there is good news, and God's Spirit opens our eyes to see it so that the people on this continent and the people on every continent of the world have a witness to life, to light, to Jesus, the unique Savior. And so the church is meant to be a network of people who believe the good news, who embrace the life of God, who take on that ministry of discipleship, announcing what God has done, inviting, welcoming people to join us, teaching them, caring for one another, uh, addressing to heal uh, our community and our world. And in that sense, that one light, the, the, what, what Isaiah describes as, as the dawn of Jesus' resurrection, the light has begun, is meant through the people who believe in Jesus to, to be an increasing presence of light in this otherwise dark world. And so, for us as one community among many in our city and in the world, how can we be better at being the kind of network, the kind of community of people that are brought together by the Spirit who are catching others who are falling through the cracks of life? All of us are called to mission. Some of you are more drawn to the merciful compassion. Some of you are more drawn to the bold proclaiming. We need both. And we all need to be doing both, but we need to be working together because some of you have a gift of evangelism. Some of you who are able to announce the good news and, and teach Christianity interpersonally with friends, coworkers, in a way that, that actually helps them, helps them see it. That either they get offended, but you're willing to deal with it, and you keep talking until they see your love, or they, they're not unnecessarily offended. Some people have that gift. If you have that gift, exercise it. Be faithful to it. A lot of us don't have that gift, but when the person with that gift catches somebody and then invites them to our basketball outing, or to our home group, or to Sunday church, or to our Christmas concert, maybe those of you who can't go out and, and catch that skeptic but could welcome and love them and serve them food, or, or could help teach them if they're interested, or could help care for them if they're hurting, the church as a net needs a variety of people with a variety of gifts, and we should all be trying to be so transparent with our faith that we're all, there's a certain stickiness about us all. Come, join us as we're following Jesus, that people would get caught up in this great movement towards God. But I would say some of you have a particular affinity for it, an excitement, a gift. Um, exercise it as part of this community. And those of you that um, are immediately fearful, I would say, be bold, try it. Say something this week that makes you uncomfortable. But if you find you keep failing at it, don't get discouraged. But, but let's connect with one another so that as a church, we, we're a bit of a net in this neighborhood. Are there people that are hurting, people that are confused, people who want God but don't know where to find him? Let's be the kind of church where, where those people don't pass us by, but, but we catch them and welcome them and care for them. So.
Um, if we want to be growing, it's not just about me and my personal piety, but it's about the kind of transformation that helps us together have fellowship and be on mission. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we, um, we pray that in this gathering today that you would bring that good news as a greater reality into our hearts and minds, into our community, to help any one of us who is struggling, who needs that goodness, who needs that healing, who needs hope and light, but also, Lord, help us to be a community that, that cares for one another well enough that, that our community um, helps catch people uh, who are struggling, who are wandering. Help us to be a gracious, kind community that points people to you, uh, who is faithful to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray in the upcoming months that we would have a new courage, a new zeal, a new excitement, a new humility, a new grace, that we would find that we um, are among those in this city who see the goodness of the good news and want others to experience that goodness. Lord, give us the humility to do that rightly. We pray that your light would be the one that shines in us uh, and help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.